Hey there, Recovery Nation producer John here. Today's episode of Full Potential Now is the first in our three-part miniseries, California Addiction Diaries. Part 1, Jane. In this special collaboration with award-winning filmmaker and director Steve Balderson, we'll hear unique stories of addiction and recovery from the Golden State. We'll also hear expert commentary from licensed mental health and addiction counseling veteran and Full Potential Now host, Ted Isidore. Don't go anywhere. I like to know about where people come from, you know, about how they grew up, because it, even just a little bit of a backstory so that we can get an idea to paint a picture of who this person is. So I was uh, born and raised in a small beach town in California and um, to a family of surfers. And uh, I have a, I'm from a good-looking athletic family. And I'm the youngest of five kids, and I came out of the shoot uh, a theater person, a person with pale skin who, you know, I'd never get a tan. My dad tried to get me to surf, and the surfboard smashed me in the face. And so I am a person who really genuinely felt like I never quite fit in. I didn't know where I, um, where my people were. I felt sort of like an alien, you know, dropped into this family of beautiful people and I just I just um, but that's not why I I drank and did drugs Um, it is I think part of it which is why I bring that up growing up in you know Malibu and the beach towns and California and like being surrounded in that environment I didn't know anything about that as she told her story more and more um, didn't have the same kinds of experiences that the other people that I talked to had You know, it's like everybody, I mean, of course, everybody has their own unique story and, and probably no two stories are the same. My mother is alcoholic. And so as far back as I can remember, she would get drunk while making dinner and basically pass out on the dinner table every night. And so I grew up with the mantra, I'm never going to be like you. I'm never going to be like you. You're weak, you know really cursing that my mother was an alcoholic and um, feeling that was another way I felt alienated from my friends who seemed to have like perfect families and parents who loved each other. You know, my parents loved each other, but the alcoholism can color everything so that the love can be a little, let's call it buried, buried, uh, drowned out by the booze. When you grew up with your mom being an alcoholic, was she abusive to you guys at all, emotionally or physically? No. Okay. No, not physically. Emotionally, because when you grow up with an alcoholic, it hurts. Sure. You recognize that your mother has a weakness, and it's a primary relationship. And you, you you know, she would become incapacitated and... um so I wouldn't say there was a deliberate emotional abuse. You know, um, when I became a teenager and wanted to punish her, I think it's just the naive, it's a naive thing that teenagers want to do when they see weakness in their parents. Um, you know, she would lash out, but she would defend herself. And she used to tell me how selfish I was. And all you do is think about yourself, which is what teenagers do. Sure. <laughs> you know? But I wouldn't say that she was 
actively she was beautiful her love for me was pure and uh you know she um was in the clutches if you will alcohol and drug abuse when you've got the bug and you're an alcoholic can feel like you're in the stocks right you can't get out your head and your hands are just out and everybody's throwing you know tomatoes at your face and dead fish you know that's what it feels like when you got the when you got the bug I had a conversation with her about the 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 bug the gene I think she called it the bug you know that she had her mother was an alcoholic but her mother wasn't abusive any well she was emotionally abusive because as a, a living with a, a parent who's an alcoholic you just have that you know the the imbalance um but other than that it was like her siblings were also partiers and and crazy but this was the first time that i i felt like it was more like their the whole cultural lifestyle she felt like an outsider she felt like she didn't belong so in in that world of the surfers and you know her family she wanted to fit in she wanted to belong but deep in her core she knew she didn't because that wasn't her and it took her until she found uh the the theater kids before she realized oh these are my people um then as i was growing up i found theater i found uh, uh acting and singing and dancing and that became my passion but i never really addressed this feeling of um i just never felt at ease i never felt very peaceful inside which is a common thread among my friends who are in um a recovery program this uh we feel like when we finally met up with each other and we can all hang out with other sober alcoholics like there's a part of us that gets like Ah, I can exhale. I can exhale. And that reminded me of the interview uh, with the woman from uh, Rock and Roll who said, you know, once she found punk rock and the other punk rock kids, then finally she felt at home. That is so interesting um, and actually compelling from the standpoint yeah. that when we always the flip side is we always look at people who are successful in recovery and they sort of find their recovery group. But if you flip it, you know, upside down, when somebody first gets hooked in, the part of not belonging is maybe the piece that leads them down that path or kind of sets, sets the stage for potentially getting hooked into addiction. Yeah, that's a, that's a slippery slope because, and a, and a very tricky situation because if you go through life always feeling totally out of place and you never belong and then you find a group a group of people whom you connect with they're speaking your language everything is in sync and then they just happen to be addicts or substance abusers or even just substance users you know i imagine that some of these groups you know that people are attracted to and they enter and they surround themselves with these people. I imagine not all of those people in that group are addicts, but they might be users. And if 
you are an addict going into that situation where you're surrounded by substance to use, then you probably will use it. And if you are a person with an addictive um, chemical makeup, then it just might be that that's just a really bad recipe. Oh, I love that. I love that take on it. Because yeah, it's actually interesting because, you know, you spend, on my, in my side of the world, you spend all your time with people who have the addictive, oftentimes a gene, and just become addicted to various substances. So when I got into the seventh grade and drugs and alcohol became the cool, what the cool kids did, I already had been watching my brothers and sisters drink and do drugs with relative impunity. Um, and they were, because of the, of the gift of uh, birthright or whatever, just a tall, blonde, tan, great-looking people. And so they were able to party, is what we would say back in the day, party as a verb, um, with impunity and not have many consequences. Um, probably the first time I ever got really drunk, I would, we would, uh, met up in our neighbor's tree house. He had a very elaborate tree house that had shingles on it. I mean, it was like an actual tiny house built into a, an oak tree. And we'd all steal booze from our parents and go up into that tree house. And I remember drinking enough to get completely wasted and falling out of the tree. And everybody laughed, and it really hurt. Um, but I was drunk, so it didn't hurt that bad. And so I got the little goose of getting attention from my cool old, older siblings. And that um, uh, I got to be a, a I got I got invited to the party for the first time. So I started to really recognize that allure. Then I got into seventh grade and all the cool kids were smoking weed. And, you know, my the parties that I grew up in looked like the opening scene in Jaws. Um, that barbecue, we all had beach barbecues and we'd get beer and we'd smoke weed and we'd go in the ocean. The only difference is the shark and the um, <laughs> getting gobbled up by the shark. <laughs> that never happened. Nobody got gobbled up by a shark. Well, we certainly did get wasted on the beach and skinny dip in the ocean. What we have a tendency not to talk about is the upsides to addiction or to substances, which means in the beginning, and we oftentimes hear that from clients that are in treatment, the romancing of the good times when they first started using the substances and all the benefits it gave them feelings of euphoria. They might even be able to escape some anxiety and depression type symptoms through the use of substances. They generally have a good time. They get connected to other people using at that point. Um, but we miss that part of their lives because we're picking them up on the back end. There's a front end. And the front end really never leaves because even when somebody's been in recovery for years and years and years, they still will have these random cravings and these random thoughts back to the old days and how good it was. That's the romancing piece of things. So the thing I think we really need to understand just generally is this idea that that substance definitely paid that person benefits. That's why they came back to it. 
And even when their lives go down the tubes, I mean, obviously there's a biological and physiological piece to addiction, but ultimately there's some sort of payoff for it. And when the payoff reaches the point where it's no longer a payoff and it's leading them down the tubes, that's generally when sometimes people will reach out for help. So there's a lot of power that comes with being attached to uh, drug dealers and, you know, and partiers who do it well. My brother was one of the big uh, coke dealers in town. So, and he, you know, was the king of our small beach town. And I remember going to bars with him and we'd get free drinks all night because he, you know, gave the bartender a bunch of coke. And, um, you know, he was like, he was the king. You know, we walk into a bar. Everybody loves the handsome Coke dealer surfer dude, you know. Right. And uh, I used to be very proud to be under the arm of my big brother, you know. And, and uh, you know, when drugs and alcohol work, it works. It feels great, you know. You get a lot of attention and a lot of, you know, getting high is, is really, people wouldn't do it if it didn't start out being kind of fun and feel good. It wasn't until I got into high school when um, my family ha- got hit by a financial crisis. Um, my father couldn't get a job. My mother had to go back to work. We went on welfare. And I came home one day and there was no furniture in the house. And I had to go live with my 25-year-old sister, which I thought was fantastic because she was um, freckled like I am and partied like I did and she um she's funny and she partied you know she and um, i believe you know to self in my world they call it a self-diagnosed disease um and she doesn't consider herself an alcoholic but um she's an alcoholic <laughs> The people who are just users or slash abusers that never show up at treatment, we would I would never see those people. Right. Yet, yet those people could color a lot of somebody else's world who eventually does show up at treatment because they're addicted to some drug or alcohol or some substance. I also started hanging out with my friend Pookie, and we um, then I was sort of like, now I'm drinking and doing drugs in the big leagues because he was a terrible drug addict and alcoholic. And how how long did that last? How long was this period of just being? Yeah, just careening. Well, yeah. it was also, I had a lot of laughs. It was a lot of fun, you know. Um, I guess when I was about 21 years old, I uh, remember going to this uh, celebration my small beach town has every year um and i remember doing limbo in the parking lot and i woke up in jail so that was sort of the beginning of the as they say in my community the crisco on my ass for the slide down so i crashed my car uh and i they also when you get a dui they require you to do all these uh you have to do all these things in order to pay the price. And um, it's funny that that's part of the punishment, because if you've got the bug, if you are an alcoholic, the things that they require you to do, never be late for class or your alcohol school, show up to AA meetings. I think I had to go to like six of them. 
uh, clean up trash on the side of the highway. These things are impossible for um, an, an alcoholic like me. I was like, I ain't doing that. Right. And I split. I left the state of California. In the process of coping with an addict in the system, like the system of the, the government, the, the world, the, the law, doesn't know how to deal with the addict. So when someone gets pulled over for a DUI and they have to do this list of things to make up for it, none of which include treatment or help. And I found that really interesting because I think that if you get to a point where you are getting a DUI, it might be worth looking into, is there a history here? Is there a pattern here? This person might just be getting a DUI once, or this person might really have a problem. I worked with probably thousands of people that were referred to treatment due to a previous OWI or multiple OWIs or DUIs, whatever state you're in and what you call them. And when we look at these people, what we see is a pattern typically toward abuse or eventually addiction. But why do people not come to terms with it? This is often the million dollar question I've always, I've always been asked as an addiction counselor, is I don't get it. Ted, you're working with people with four or five OWIs and they're telling you at the end of the program that they're thinking about going back drinking. And then when you think about it from a rational side, you're like, that makes no sense. I could probably ask high school students, should this person go back to drinking? And they would say, after five OWIs, um, I think that they just need to kind of give alcohol up. But what I discovered is these people oftentimes have a plan to go back to drinking. And when I first started working with them, especially the, the, the ladies and men that, that had four or five OWIs, I thought to myself, what are they doing? I don't get why they don't get it. And then I started asking them the questions, which was, what is their thoughts and feelings related to going back? What happened after the first one? Did they have a plan? What happened after the second one? Did they revamp their plan? What happened after the third one? Did they revamp their plan? Initially, from the outside, people would think, I don't get it. Um, are they just not getting things? I mean, it's obvious to us. If you have five OWIs, probably stay away from drinking, so then you avoid drinking and driving. So you always develop a better plan to avoid future OWIs. You're not going to give up alcohol. You may give it up for a short period of time, but ultimately you're going to return. And all these people had plans about how they would never drink or drive again. I never met one, and I'm talking, I work with thousands. I never met one person that did not have some sort of actually solid plan of how they would avoid either binge drinking or drinking and driving. Set drink limits, go with people, leave their car, leave their keys at home, etc. There's a thing that also I learned in sobriety uh, about, they call them geographics, where I then, it's when you, you know, decide, well, California's the problem. I know, I'll go to Texas and I'll t straighten up and fly right. And then suddenly I find myself right back where I was in California, but with different characters now. Now I'm hanging out in uh, rockabilly clubs. So I lasted in Texas about four months 
and then I decided because I was then I got into meth a little bit and that is I was like this is just a bunch of losers blah 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 so I jumped in my my car and I drove to Nashville and that's when I started hanging out with uh real alcoholics you know people who wake up in the morning and you know we would we would start writing songs and then get drunk and go to the bar and come back write some record some more get drunk until the bars closed and then go to after hour clubs and that just became like a lifestyle so that's probably when my daily drinking started to really really go to a different level in the hollywood entertainment world there are so many enablers, as we've learned in so many different aspects over the past few years, and if not always. But it's amazing that while uh, I think she said she got a job, it was either a TV show or a movie, and she showed up and they fired her on the third day because, you know, she had been just drunk the whole time. Because, like, somebody shows up plastered at, like, a state or government job, they're probably going to be, like, you know question they're gonna have to go to like an employee assistance program have to get an assessment yet you're working in a business where it's kind of maybe a little bit more important to get the movie done yeah it's so crazy but i have heard crazy horror stories i mean and not even horrific stories just crazy stories that can make your skin crawl that were encouraged by the people who were putting whatever it was together so, so on top of that, you know, trying to be in, in recovery as an addict in an environment like that, you know, kudos to this woman because she was able to do it and still exist and still have a career. You know, I would think that a lot of people who would attempt to, you know, get clean and sober when they're surrounded by it all the time in, a, in an industry that uh, doesn't, you know, uh, turn its nose up at that, that it might have ended her career. So, you know, I'm anybody who can get through it, I'm kudos to them for sure. At that point I was like 27 years old and I went um I went to a meeting. I called a, um the central office, AA central office and went to a meeting. And uh my whole life changed at that point. And I started I thought, you know, just to get my to get my shit together I do the stupid program and do what they tell me and so I started on that path what happened was I started to sleep better than I've ever slept you know within a month I was I turned out I wasn't agoraphobic turned out I wasn't anemic turns out I wasn't um um what else did I tell myself I told myself I was agoraphobic anemic depressed it's just like once I eliminated alcohol and drugs from the occasion, I was a fairly, you know, joyful person. So they call that the pink cloud. And uh, it was a real beautiful, um, magical time in my life because I didn't really, uh, I have never lived a life that didn't include drugs and alcohol from when I was born. I was born into an alcoholic family. I felt the kind of joy I never felt before, you know. So I did the 12 steps, and I, uh, my 
person that helps me with the program said, are you ready to go relapse? You said you weren't going to ever go to Ireland and not have a beer. You weren't going to ever go to Italy and not have a glass of wine. And I did the, um, the, uh, the 12 steps and I didn't want to do that anymore because I had all these friends and I had this and my career started to come back. And, um, and I've been clean, clean and sober for 28 years. So amazing. Yeah. What about, uh, the relationship that you had with your family and family members when you became sober? Was it difficult? Were they, how was that? Well, you rock the boat. If you come in from a alcoholic family and you get sober and nobody else does, you rock the boat. So there was a period of adjustment, but there's a lot of love in my family. And I don't require, I didn't require that everybody not drink or, you know, and I still don't. They, they do their, they do their thing and I do my thing. You know, this works for me. Um, I feel like uh, the program has provided my life with a kind of structure that has enabled me to thrive. And I have a really beautiful marriage. I've been married for 23 years. I have three gorgeous kids. Uh, I own my own home. Like I have a beautiful life. Um, yeah. That I feel like if I had a drink today, poof, gone. I feel like it all go away. So I don't, I don't mess with it. I, to this day, I, I continue to go to my recovery program and meetings and I continue to participate. I'm very active in my community. Uh, I help a lot of people. I feel like I help people get sober and it's given me a purpose and um, it's provided my life with profound meaning um which cool. is why i keep doing it i wouldn't I, you know i always tell people who are new and they're like i cannot believe you've been sober 28 years i was like i would not do this to be some sort of saint i do this i help people because it makes me feel good and reminds me that i don't want to i don't want to have a hangover ever again i know what that feels like to wake up and throw up with a dry empty stomach and and shame like that just sort of makes you shudder with um like not wanting to leave the house and a self-loathing that is because for me it meant like i'm a drunk like my mom so it was deep and i haven't had that feeling in 28 years and i don't want it i don't want to do that any i don't ever want it no party is worth that for me you know after studying and learning NLP, I'm, I'm fascinated by how our minds are wired and how one can be wired so vastly different than a different mind. I mean, of course, we're all wired differently, but I'm always fascinated by learning the extremes. I've learned different techniques that they teach you in sobriety on how to address those issues so that I don't have to walk around pissed off all the time. It's the it's why people end up relapsing is because they're they don't want to deal with why they're pissed off about something. If you are not pissed off and you are being kind to people around you and you are helping people, 
uh, on the planet Earth and being a human among humans, there's not really a driving force to go out and get wasted. There's no right. reason to sort of hit oblivion because you want to participate in the beautiful life that you've created, right? So these are the gifts of this. Is, this that is a, a, a huge, huge change that can happen for people who feel hopeless, buried, drowned in under booze that is available to people if they choose to take that initial step and surrender and just go to the fucking sparkly-eyed freaks and ask them how they did it. What did you do? Your whole life can change if you decide to surrender to accepting that you cannot drink like other people. You 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 know some people are diabetic, some people have cancer, some people are alcoholic. That's my my thing. This was all all of it. This was so great. Yeah. <laughs> this was really fun. Hey there, Recovery Nation producer John here again. Thank you so much to the guests of the California Addiction Diary series for sharing their stories with us. Today's interview was conducted by director and filmmaker Steve Balderson with editing by Jimmy Cohen. To learn more about Steve's work, visit dikenga.com. That's D-I-K-E-N-G-A.com. If you liked today's episode, you can subscribe, leave a review, and listen to past episodes on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. And visit fullpotentialnow.org for your free TED tools including where to find a rehab center near you. Thanks for listening.